Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello. My name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 83 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. And before I tell you about this week's guest, I've just got to make you aware of two exhibitions I happen to be in. I know it sounds a little bit big-headed going straight into a podcast speaking about myself, but I've not been in an exhibition for six months and two have just opened, albeit one online. So yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity to sing it a little bit loud. Well, the first is the online exhibition, which involves 20 artists commemorating 100 years of the Magistrates Association. The exhibition is called 100 Years of Justice, and it's looking at 10 related themes, both 100 years in the past and 100 years in the future. The artists involved are from all walks of life. There's even another artist there that got involved via Kersler Arts which is the amazing charity that I happen to be lucky enough to be on the board of. I created an artwork for the future concept of justice. I created an open padlock which was made of tally marks. There was 36,524 in all, marking every day of the future 100 years. I created an open padlock because I was confident that by the end of the next 100 years, there'll be a new solution to imprisoning so many people. And by strange chance, the artist that was doing the past concept of justice was Francis Hodson. Francis and I don't know each other, but both our work was fine liner on paper and we was marking time with our pens. Francis's is 50 hours of community service. 
almost as a punishment, Francis drew and joined thousands upon thousands of circles. With these circles, she's created a large organic mass, which pretty much had no other purpose other than to log her 50 hours of community service. You can see all of these artworks over on the website. As I said, it's a virtual exhibition, but it will go physical in October 2021. A long time away, but, you know, that's the way of the world at the moment. You can see the virtual exhibition at www.ma100yearsofjustice.com or over on Instagram, which is at ma100years. The second exhibition is taking part at the Spitalfields Townhouse, which is number 5 Fournier Street, just off Brick Lane. This exhibition features 30 artists, with all of the work having either a theme or inspired by Spitalfields itself. My artwork was, well, you've guessed it, a padlock made out of tallies. It was taken from a photograph of a padlock that I took on a locked door when I was at the Art Car Boot Fair a few years ago. This exhibition runs from the 12th of September until the 25th of October. And for more information, you can either go to townhousespitterfields.com or on their Instagram, which is also townhousespitterfields. But let's get back to this week's episode. A few weeks ago, I put a call out for artists to contact me if they was free on a certain day, because I had a few hours spare and I wanted to record a podcast. Well, my friend and previous podcast guest, Elizabeth Waggett, got in touch with me and told me about her friend, Lyle O'Worko, who's got a story that I really need to get on Ministry of Arts. I'm afraid to say I didn't recognise Lyle's name, and knowing that Elizabeth wouldn't have mentioned him to me without good reason, I looked him up on Google. And, oh my God, did I need him on the Ministry of Arts podcast. Now, Lyle is a Canadian photographer that has lived in several countries throughout his life. He's currently living in LA. And I don't think this is too much of a bold statement when I say that I'm pretty sure that everyone listening to this podcast has seen Lyle's work. On September the 11th, 2001, Lyle became responsible for capturing one of the most dramatic photographs since the invention of the camera. With panic and debris filling the air of Manhattan, Lyle, like everyone else, just thought it was a devastating accident. That was until the second plane was seen banking round to take direction into Tower Number 2. Time magazine showed Lowell's photograph of a fireball exiting all four sides of Tower Number 2 on its front cover. As an image, it's aesthetically beautiful. However, the actions that created it makes it one of the most powerful, harrowing, disturbing and thought-provoking photographs that we're ever likely to see. As any of you know that listen to these podcasts, you'll be well aware that I like to rabbit quite a bit. This was one conversation where I just sat back and listened. I mean, we've all seen the footage, we've seen the photographs, but when you just sit down and listen to the story from someone's lips who was actually there, it really is quite moving. And as I said earlier, this podcast was recorded about two weeks previous to the day this is being released, September the 11th. And it was only when I was speaking to Lyle that I thought of releasing it today. But I didn't know whether this was a day that I should bring it out, or a day that I definitely shouldn't bring it out. So I asked Lyle himself, and Lyle said that this was a moment that should never be not spoken about. So please, 
Come and join me when I speak to Lyle O'Rourke. So where are you living at the moment? Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles now. I was in uh, I was in New York City for over 25 years, yeah. and finally reached the end of my tenure there, um, and needed new horizons just for both creative yeah. input and for creative output. My wife is from uh, her family's in the Bay Area, so we went to San Francisco first, and I had a studio in Oakland for two years that created a lot of new work that I could never have created in New York. Um, it wasn't the most easy place to transplant myself after New York. And in fact, my horizons were, were Berlin. Um, I'd been accepted to uh, an education program in Berlin that I thought would be really interesting, would open some new doors and, um, and love came to town. And, uh, as it does as it does i'd sold my apartment in new york and um and then met the woman who's now my wife uh carly who's a painter and after about a year in new york together we thought um let's give san francisco a try it was a, a low barrier of entry she already had an apartment in san francisco and and so it made natural sense very, very different city than any city I've really spent much time in. I've spent a lot of time in London, a lot of time in Cape Town, um, and then stints in Nairobi, as well as Rio, and, um, and always gathered a lot of energy from those cities and found their creative communities um, to really embrace me being in town. And the San Francisco community was is just going through lots of changes, um, a lot of disruption, um, which was good to see another city in America um, from uh, uh, fresh eyes out of New York, but seeing Oakland as sort of like Detroit by the sea. People people would say that it was it was like Williamsburg by the sea, but or Brooklyn by the sea. But I really felt it was like Detroit yeah. by the sea, and um, and then ended up meeting artists and, and a creative community that I would never have come in contact with had I been in New York. Right. Um, New York spoiled me. Um, I was, New York was very good to me. New York was very um, uh, comprehensive in, in, in shaping me as an artist. And that's where I came of age. I, I moved there as basically like a teenager and then left as a man and, and went through 25 years of change. Um, both with the city, um, both as a creative person, and then, and then both as a as an entity together, because I accomplished things there that truly became indelible parts of the New York history. Um, but to stay there and keep hitting the same note over and over and over again yeah. doesn't advance your career. No, and no. moving to California offered new horizons and, and really changed both my art and, and really changed my wife's art. Um, uh, she's preparing for her first solo show in Los Angeles. And um, the work that she was creating in New York is very different than the work that she's creating in California. It's amazing how your environment can shift the memento of your work, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think it was always advocated for artists to change environment. 
think environment is very important. I think that's why they there's artist residencies around um, the world. There's there's artists um, like you have a history in Berlin of like David Bowie and the London David Bowie is very different than the Berlin David yeah, Bowie. Yeah. Um, and then there's even you too who went to Berlin and recorded one of their most seminal albums um, at a time when when the Cold War was turning over and, and Berlin was turning over. Um, I think environment informs the artist um, and artists have always had kind of slightly higher antennas. Like you can have um, two artists not communicating with each other in entirely different environments in the world. They may be friends of some sort. Um, you might not talk for four or five years. You'll call each other up. You'll be like, you know, I just started painting with a lot of blue lately. And, and the other person's like, me too. I don't know what. And, and, and yeah. you're like, yeah. and, but it's because you, the artist's mind really taps into an ether with these antennas and um, it picks up information that other people aren't. Um, and that can be these little scraps. People think artists are, are like magpies. You're out finding the shiny objects and the interesting things and then building your nest with it. And you never know what you're going to be getting that day, but it all becomes this knitted together structure that is your safety net that helps you incubate what's happening next. Well, I've been recording for a few minutes now, as, as you're aware. Yeah. Um, I should introduce you. Your name's Lyle Awerko. Um, you're a photographer from, uh, well, from, from all around the world, it would appear. Um, and the first question I have um, is, how would you explain what you do to somebody that doesn't know your work? Uh, the best phrase came from a client once, and she called me a creative anthropologist. Oh, nice. And, th and that, that stuck. And, and I think it helps explain the Brit and bridge all the different bodies of work that I've done. Um, I like to think that I work in a, in a Kubrick-like manner where each project is its own world. And, and if you look at the, the history of Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker, each film is so different than the last film, yeah. but each has its own world, both technically that he created, as well as visually, as well as the actor choice, and as well as the storylines. Mm -hmm. And my work is all part of documenting the human condition, I think I come from a place of positivity. I don't, I don't believe the human dysphoria is, is a negative one. I think that we come from light. I think cultures come from light. I think cultures bleed into one another and inform and make for a greater whole. But within that uniqueness, I like to stop time. And the times I went to Africa, I was there for various different assignments. And for very different reasons. One of the assignments was with the UN. I, I went there to work on a project that was a conjunctive bridge between Columbia University, the Earth Institute, and um, the UN. And it was documenting a village that they were introducing new, what they call technologies, but it was new ways to help these people empower themselves, both economically, socially, and environmentally and um 
teaching them how to um, introduce fertilizer into their crops to have higher yields, things that they hadn't, under, hadn't been employing in their culture. And I, I spent a month there, went back to Nairobi, and I was going to head on to a, a trip to go meet some friends at a safari camp. And an old friend who I'd worked with, who had had an ad agency that I'd done a lot of work for when I was younger, invited me to go north to see a project she was doing where I had been donating fine art prints to their auctions every year to generate funds for. And um, <clears throat> that's where I went and met the Samburu people. There was no agenda. I, I They dropped me off on the side of the road in the middle of the night with my gear and a backpack and said, oh, these people are going to take care of you. We'll see you in a week. We've got to go to this other thing. <laughs> and, and I'm literally standing there on the side of the road and these two guys come over and they have feather mohawks and and i'm like you gotta be kidding me like no one prepared me for this all they've been talking about is these school children and and these guys that were like literally like the rolling stones of the bush like they were the coolest neatest funniest most engaging beautiful people you could imagine living in this um part of Africa that hadn't even had a paved road go through it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I just saw the beauty in them. We had so much fun. I just saw the beauty in them and, and the portraits I didn't weren't thought out. They were just, Hey, this guy is cool. Um, he just walked into camp. Can we hold up the bed sheet and, and let me take his picture Two, really? three, four taps. And, and that was it. And um, I ended up doing, I think about six, six trips to them. And became just good friends and, and enraptured in their culture and the tribe and their ways. And, and in fact, five of them uh, a few years ago came to New York for a fundraiser for that charity. Nice. And they stayed with me in, in New York in my loft. And, um, and, and my neighbors were like, this is amazing. I think they have to be with you. And, and my, my dog at the time was uh, a pit bull. It was a very gregarious, outgoing creature. She was like, what took so long for this to happen? Like, this is amazing. These guys can stay forever. Yeah. And, and, and I remember they all stayed in one room together like they would in a campsite. And uh, I went in and, and looked at my dog sleeping in with all of them laying on the floor. And she just kind of looked up at me and I was like, you're having the best time of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what the, did they think of New York? You know what? They um, they thought it was really funny, and seeing New York through their eyes with so much humor, and one of the things they thought was the funniest ever was big men with little tiny dogs on the leash. <laughs> Whenever they saw that, they would laugh. They thought it was so funny, and. <laughs> And then being tribesmen in full gear, like full regalia, and then going, being in the subways and, and seeing like escalators and moving walkways yeah. were just the, the funniest things to them. Like, like they couldn't believe, why would you have a moving walkway? Like, like I'm still full that myself. <laughs> exactly. And so seeing New York to their eyes and, and also just, and, and they, they um they were culture of warriors so the thing is never show fear never show fear anywhere so they they were confident anywhere and and um and they they just want to go home 
like they were like, you know, it was nice to meet the crazy people and see the tall buildings and and all the noise and that. But man, I can't wait to go back home to the bush and sleeping under the stars yeah. and um and taking care of my cows and my goats and being back with my family. Brilliant. And and, and there's so much love and education that came through that and yeah. and the lives the people that they touched in new york but how they were also like you know what i've got a great life and yeah, i'd uh, rather go back home yep enough enough with the crazy people uh, when i was traveling one time in africa i met this group of people from new zealand at a, at a camp and they all traveled together one woman um her husband was New Zealander and he had served in second world war. And, uh, he never came on any of these group trips that they all went on. He was like, left New Zealand, saw Europe during the second world war, never need to leave again. And, <laughs> and there's things that you learn from that. And, but again, your question was, um, environment shaping the artist and, and it is good to get out of your comfort zone. The reason I left New York was it was a comfort zone that I could have maintained and lived in and functioned in for the rest of my life. But that would be hitting one note on the keyboard yeah. of life. I needed to, to move up the keyboard and hear different notes and experiment more. Um, if I was uh, a concert pianist in new york playing classical music i need to yeah. get out of the road and hear some jazz well i'm well aware that your work that was become well known um from new york you've you've obviously spoken about too many times and this will be another but would you be able to talk about the images you captured yeah it's 9-11 is my responsibility it's a responsibility to articulate the experience, the capturing of those images, the sharing of those images in as gentle and as informative and as an edu educational manner as possible that I can. Um, it's a responsibility that I carry and I was given that responsibility. That responsibility came as an alignment in the universe. I'll never be able to quantify or fully understand because um, it was a thousand minute decisions made in a very high stress environment with gear, um, with cameras. A lot of people in this digital world now, uh, it's almost 20 years since those images were taken. Those were taken with film cameras. Yeah. There was a different mythology, a different way of articulating how you shot. Now I, at my iPhone, I, I, I can go out take 2000 pictures with my son uh, in the playground in, in an afternoon. Um, not a problem with an eight, eight megapixel camera that has a very good rendering. Um, then it was, it was a, a film camera where you had to time your pictures. You had to think about it. An actor once asked me, what do I miss about taking pictures with film cameras? And I said, the breath I used to take before I hit the shutter. Nice. And 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 he, I remember his head just kind of went. That wasn't, and he was like, "That was not the answer I was expecting." <laughs> and because most people are expecting a very technical answer, and I can see people taking pictures, and 
and watch their breathing and know the method behind gathering what they were gathering. Yeah. So that day wasn't about taking lots of pictures. It was about efficient use of the, the camera gear in a very high stress situation with being put in the position to tell a story that was history. Yeah. And as, as I've said to people in the past and, and, and in a particular project, there's moments when you're part of time and there's moments when you are part of history. Mm. This was a moment where I was part of history and I was the hands, ears, eyes of a greater purpose, which is to record something as honestly and as truthfully as possible. Yeah. I don't feel I have a sarcastic lens. I don't feel I have a mean lens. I've always tried to have a very diligent, truthful and empowering lens and to always use my lens to elevate. Um, so in that situation, I think I captured something that was very dynamic, that was very cinematic, that was very hard to even believe. Like it's, it's still, I look at the images and it's not like I was taking the, the images. There was a, a, a greater purpose acting through me to document things in as articulate and as gentle and as truthful manner as possible. I mean, how long was you in front of the towers, Lowell, from pretty much from start to finish? Um, through the timing of it, I actually worked, uh, I had to time out my photos with okay. the fire investigators um, oh, okay. from the National Institute. Um, I, they're, they're wonderful. It's, I think it's like the National Institute of Standards and Sciences, something like that. It's, forgive me for not knowing um, the name of it, I can look it up easily, but uh, it's um, it's trailing, it's falling out of my brain right now. But um, they were the ones that put together the fire report on the buildings coming down, yeah. and they had contacted me from Washington and came up to look at my imagery, and they placed that against a timeline, and they said, "Wow, first of all, you were moving really fast, you were thinking on your feet very quickly." And you thought in terms of a storyline. Yeah. And the first plane crash, I believe, was 8.47 a.m. The second one was 9.02. So I managed from 8.47 to get from my apartment on Broadway in Franklin in Tribeca to the World Trade Center site, document along the way and be positioned in this place of a spectacular truth to see the second plane come in. And I'd merely positioned myself where I was right under the World Trade Towers where I could get the photo of both of them. I would have the sun behind me so they were lit really well where I could juxtapose the two towers against each other. The one that was standing tall and brilliantly and defiantly, the other one that had just been shivved by a plane of unknown origin and and that was a, a great shot it was like well, at that hey, point i presume you you just thought it was an accident that had happened yeah a very odd accident on an incredibly beautiful clear day yeah but accidents happen in all kinds of situations that we can't determine um, i've seen i've seen the first photographs of yours when it looks like the, the, the one that you're talking about when it looks like you're 
standing right at the base looking up when, when you're probably about I don't know maybe a hundred yards away but when you're looking up and you can see both of the towers and then there's mm -hmm. the famous one on front of Time magazine where there is an explosion in in one of the towers where the second plane was hit mm -hmm. and I was positioned there and I saw the second plane I actually heard it first and my immediate reaction was okay they're diverting air tra traffic out of Newark planes are scrambling you're like there must be something going on because at that point my only understanding of the event was in real time yeah a lot of people over the years said oh you must have saw it on tv and reacted no no i was reacting to the sound of a plane crashing in my neighborhood i'd just flown back from africa my camera bags were still packed at the front door of my apartment because i was lazy and didn't unpack the gear and so I had my movement bag ready and film and ready to go. God bless and laziness, eh? Exactly. There's something to be said. <laughs> and um, it's, it's like there's um, that never clean your desk because you never know what you might <laughs> exactly. find, um at the moment of inspiration. And, um, and so there was, um, I, I reacted to the sound. Like, hey, I, a plane just crashed in Tribeca reacted to the sound, I got to get moving, hit the road, boom, and followed a storyline that was unraveling in real time of which the architect's true vision for this event was way beyond my sense of comprehension and the world's. And, and so happened to be in this position, heard the second plane, then I saw it and was like, wow, like, the aircraft must really be scrambling yeah. and was it the second one low that banked around yeah that's what I, I saw it bank and then when it's its wings were out and then it tilted and when it did that then i knew Hell. its intention it's just like a predator going for prey yeah um like when you're all the time i spent in the field in africa and then in the years since mongolia where you're seeing uh, an apex predator going after its prey, uh, an eagle tucking its wings in, or um, a lion or a leopard going after prey, it, it has a certain set of machinations it employs in that purpose. Yeah. And, and seeing this airplane tilt its wings, pull this hard turn, and then it was like, okay, I see where this plane is going. And, and so I saw the plane, but I had a choice as a photographer. The particular camera I had in my hand would be about 1.3 seconds to rewind the frame. And it was a medium format camera. And I made the choice to wait for the event, not shoot the plane coming in because I couldn't quite manage the airspeed. And I didn't, I was like, if this thing hits, I have a choice to shoot it coming in or the shot of it yeah, hitting. Yeah. That was the decision I made. Can't explain it. It was all made in literally hundreds of a second. Yeah. Uh, choices, but it's a choice I made. And, and it's, it's only experience that made you make that choice in, in the microseconds, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you're, pulling, um, you're pulling from a bucket of, of things that have formed your life up to that point. Yeah. And um, over the years, I've gotten a lot of exposure to different pro athletes, a lot of race car drivers both in F1 and the NASCAR series, 
who you get to talk with and they can't quite explain making those decisions um, yeah. that they do, instinct. but instinct. I've been fortunate to be exposed to some of those people. And so you have very interesting conversations because there's, there's your conversation and then there's this ether between the words where you're like, I was, I did something on a particular day on the earth in a particular set of circumstances that you cannot replicate. Yeah. You might not even make the same choices again, put in the same situation, but nonetheless, I was there. I made a decision while all of this chaos was happening and it produced a result and I'm here to talk about it. Yeah. And when, when you had the realization, Lyle, that that plane that was banking, when you sort of realized it's very probably going to hit that other tower purposely, can you even remember that, like your your feeling there, like the, the feeling that you must have had in your gut, or even even in your oh, yeah. throat, you know? Yeah, I can I can conjure that feeling up in a second. It I it sits in a box it. inside my head. Yeah. You try not to go there, but say in a dialogue like this, I can go and open up the box. I can pull that feeling out, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it lives like a living, breathing object in my psyche. Because the thing that the you look at the photo. I look at the photo. I hear the sirens. Yeah. I have the smells, the sounds, which I can't even articulate the sounds, especially the sound of a large commercial airliner hitting the side of a building and disintegrating into pieces in a half a city block. Like, how do you describe that? Yeah. I, I know that... We have it's an illogical set of circumstances, isn't it? It's ones that you know only appears in a dream or or a movie. You don't expect that in your neighborhood, do you? Exactly. And and I'm sure that like for all of us that got to experience the explosion in Beirut through social media yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, you we have a lot of data, a lot of personal point of view, then there's security camera footage, then the professional footage, there's a lot of different things that come into that place. And even though we have all of this information, we still can't quite grasp the magnitude of that, other than when they compared it to that it was the third largest explosion on planet Earth um, by man-made means known of uh, since uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs. Mm. Number three below that. This for me had that same sort of magnitude because of this punch, a commercial aircraft punching the side of a building with full force. They they were they were full throttle. They weren't throttling down. They were throttling up when they fully aimed the aircraft. And uh, I I watched it happen and then took a picture. And as I figured that there would be some sort of explosion. I managed to capture it at its apex and it's a very spectacular photo, um, but it still only tells part of the story, but it tells a very, very, very distinct story in the spectacular nature of the event. And, and that is a truthful articulation of the event as I could render. It's still a story that echoes in so many people's brains and hearts and lives, especially in New York, but it is, it allowed the world to fully grasp the magnitude of the event. Mm. 
um, much like we were able to grasp magnitude of the event in Beirut through um, uh, smartphones, uh, recording with a, a fidelity that didn't exist 20 years ago when I took the picture of this, but I was actually shooting a medium format camera at the time. Uh, I had two cameras with me, 35 and, and the medium format. Medium format just happened to be the one in my hands. And so it, it has a, a very strong fidelity to it, especially, and then the type of film I was shooting. So in the light, all the elements work together to create somewhat of a, a very distinct photograph can't say it's a perfect photograph. Um, it's yeah. a it's an imperfect moment rendered to the best of its fidelity. As as a creative person, the goal is to create something that's significant that your mortal coil is remembered beyond your lifetime. Yeah, that's the goal. Art artist a seminal artwork. Yeah, and our artist seeks to to define their life through their art and mark moments in time whether they're Picasso reacting against um, the insurrections in Spain um, and, and creating his masterpiece, Guarnica, which is uh, a study on so many things. And, mm -hmm. and it's all these elements coming together to create this grand story. Um, um, master's paintings always sought to render the moments of the times in ways that were important. And you have the um, Russian constructivists fighting against um, the oligarchy and at the times in their way through rendering through uh, color and abstract blocks and, and assigning meaning to that. And um, I always set out as a photographer to really take cool pictures of, and, and define things. And, and, and then at the age of 30 to have a body of work that was someone who maybe lived two or three times my age was, was really overwhelming because it was, uh, um, are you familiar with um, Anton Corbin? The, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, he, he invited, he, he's such a lovely man. And I, 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 I value every moment I'm, I'm given with him. We have nice. mutual friends that connected us years ago. And uh, I went to his, um, survey of his career in, in Holland that he had a, a ex, dual exhibitions in The Hague and, and he invited me and I was like oh, I gotta go to this it was about four years ago I jumped on a plane and flew there and, and made it my flight was delayed out of London and made it there just in time to the opening and uh, was sitting at this table and it was the director I believe it was photography museum in, in The Hague and the director of the museum like, you know, what are you doing here? Why, is, why do you fly from New York to know this gentleman that we're honoring tonight? And uh, Anton's like, well, this is my friend Lyle, and he, and he did this and this, and you probably know his time cover image from 9-11. And, and, and the director of the museum went, well, it's all downhill from there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, what could you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, of, of course, they're all like over six foot tall Dutchmen in that in that way, in that very, that very, you know, non non plus Dutch yeah. way about going about the world and, and having some dark humor to it as well. And and uh, and 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 then and then sitting and explaining to him where I was with my career because that gave me liberty to go do other things. 
Yeah. Um, you're never going to replicate that. So why try? It's like, and, it's like winning an Oscar on your second movie. Exactly. And, and so don't keep taking the same roles. Yeah. Um, hoping for a repeat. Um, really challenge yourself. And, and, and so as I evolved as a creative person over the next decade, I sought out not more conflict, not more disruption, not more hate, not more um, anger, not more tragedy. I, I sought out projects that would take me to different environments of the world and, and find joy. Yeah, the, the images you captured of that day and that day itself, did that change the way that you approached your work? Yeah, it, it changed the way I approached my work, but it opened my heart bigger. Yeah. It, it made me more of a compassionate person, but at times more intolerant. Um, um, being, I, I can admit, maybe at times I had a short temper, in yeah. like, and and they think uh, um, intolerant of BS, yeah. um, intolerant of of showboating, intolerant of of things that were flaccid or lacked soul. Yeah, that um, I have friends in entertainment directors, and and they'll and. I was in South Africa with a group of creatives one time and they were, they were a bunch of surfer friends as well as creatives and they were hacking on me, just hanging on, like just whatever I, you know, they, they just were beating me down. And finally I was in the car with one of the other guys who didn't know me and he was, we were driving along and he goes, you know, for three days I've watched these guys just beat on you, like not give you an inch on anything. Yeah. And he was like, what is up with this guy? Like, how, why would he tolerate this? And then finally they were like, oh no, like he's done all these amazing things yeah. and we're just trying to keep him honest. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then he was like, he goes, I had no idea. Like, you know, this was your career. I thought you were just this like poor tag along with this group and, and realized that you could take that from them. But there was also them keeping you honest and, and, and grounded. And there's that phrase like like not suffering fools easily, yeah. and and maybe there was a time that I was much like that, where it was like someone would be like blah 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 me 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 blah 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 I've done this blah blah and I'm like yeah right like well it must have had that same or a similar effect to loads of people, loads of New Yorkers at that moment, at, at that week, that month, or you know it, since then, you know so many people must have changed the way they thought and looked at the world. Yeah. Yeah, and th and then there was a lot of a lot of people not really knowing how to look at the world after that, um, and and also I understood that my moment was like Everesting, like 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 I I went to Everest. Other people had stories that put them on top of a mound, so to speak, but because I'd been, I was lucky enough to have a very very, and I say lucky because. I'm able to articulate my experience through a picture yeah. or a group of pictures where I can say, this is what I experienced that day. I can talk with you. We're talking about that experience. It's very tactile. There's a lot of other people whose experience is very psychological. Yeah. They were caught up in their heads. Because your main brain. image, which was on Time magazine, which had the two towers exploding, was obviously you know very dramatic, very loud. But the, the harrowing, or the ones that was equally as harrowing, were the silent ones of that you captured of people falling or jumping 
from the tower mm-hmm. that initially we all thought was debris falling down and it happened to be people that chose to make their own destiny or or what have you which is my choice in the home when i did take those pictures and and i remember the collective gasp of people when they really realized that those were people jumping was i was capturing those people in their last moment of life not their first moment of death yeah and that if i didn't take those pictures history wouldn't remember them and 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 those were very hard pictures to take and and they still are i i i I didn't click the shutter for many of them. There's many things that I did not click the shutter of that day because I didn't need that memory. Yesterday, I I saw a a, a person must have just deceased. Um, Police pulled up and put a sheet on someone sitting on a a bus bench while we were at a traffic light. Mm. And I didn't even tell my wife about it last night. It's, I didn't even take a picture of it. It's like, that person needed dignity and that was their last moment of dignity. It doesn't need to be my moment of kind of spectacular rendering. Like I didn't need, to, I didn't need to elevate my life experience or, or make my day more important than anyone else's day or more horrible. Like that person was already experiencing the ultimate, which was their soul leaving their body. And when I took those pictures, I could have taken more, but I tried to render people in almost an angelic, graceful moment of, of carnage and ballet intersecting. And, and so that future generations can go back and, and see and be like, that person made a choice of dignity, not a Definitely. choice of indignity. Yeah. And, and as history goes forward, there may be better scanning techniques. There may be better... Um, uh, reconstruction techniques where maybe some people may really be able to re- have closure with someone they lost because they're able to go in and, and determine, hey, that person was wearing, that day they left the house and they're wearing khaki pants and a blue yeah. button down and a red tie and, or a, a, a chartreuse tie and, and, and we went called through these images which are artifacts of history and we now know what happened to uncle's X or aunt, yeah. you know, Y or, or cousin Z, you know, and that's, that's important moments of history. And, and that's what I've always tried to do with my work. It's, it's every day is the same thesis. Every day is not the same, but the thesis is the same. Go out and, and contribute something epic, create something epic shoot something epic one day it may really be important to history the other day it's not important to anyone yeah but it's still under the same thesis so every project is about elevating the human condition creating multiple avenues of metaphor um i've done more pr about the boombox project more interviews more um focuses on what I'm doing with the Boombox project than I ever did with 9-11. Wow. Um, and that's strange. But it's also interesting because the two stories in mesh, like we are talking today, the stories are in mesh. Boombox project was my love letter to New York City. It was seizing on this object that was a very disruptive element in yeah. culture. But it was able to help people articulate 
their condition. And to become an artist, to become valid, to bring their voice to the table, to have show something with swagger and defiance and, and beat and rhythm and hubris and virility and all of those things together. And the boombox became, for me, was like, okay, if, if, if 9-11 is, is really contributing to the bricks and mortar of New York City as, as this remarkable place where people gathered and then at that particular moment went through a supreme tragedy together, how about find something else that brought people together in New York and help create a beat and a rhythm that now rotates around the world? It's as New York incubated hip hop, hip hop is now a very important language around the world. It isn't just rap. It isn't, hip hop is, a, is a, an ideology based on youth and community and gathering and battles and, and saying what you say and humor and all of that. And so the boombox became, if 9-11 opened the door for me to have a voice, the boombox project became the vehicle for me to project what was going on inside of me yeah. and, and why those images exist. And, and sometimes people are like, wow, you, you're jumping all over the place. You're doing it. I was like, no, 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 listen to this. And they're like, there is a link ah, there somewhere. Ah, there's the link. And, and also the Boombox project was, was my way to deal with PTSD. Yeah. Was, was do something fun. Made me laugh, made me happy, makes other people happy. Just give, um, just give us a brief synopsis of what the Boombox project was. I mean, I've, I've seen it and I've got a couple of questions here about it, but could you just explain the visual side of the Boombox project? Um, it was really simple. One artist at a dinner party thought that he would put me in my place, said, explain the boombox project in one sentence. Okay. And I said, it's my soup can. <laughs> and and, and he, he said, you MFR. <laughs> like, like, F you. Ah, I thought I had you in a corner. And and I, it just burnt, it just came out. It's like my soup can. And the soup can for Andy Warhol was the backdrop to all kinds of things. Consumerism, yeah. mass consumption, um, mass production, um, the flatlining of cuisine, the, the American way of better, bigger, faster, more. You know, it, it, the, the soup can resembles profit. It, yeah. it resembles corporations, all of these things. So... For me, the boombox project and a boombox as it stands represents freedom and disruption and youth and noise and friction with your neighbors, your ability to broadcast because up till then you were under the sort of control of the media companies through these large stereo systems that sat in your parents' house. And if you wanted to blast music, you needed a car. If you lived in the inner city, you didn't have a car. You couldn't afford a car. Yeah, a, yeah. a boombox was freedom. Um, and Freedom in the 80s. Exactly. And then it was a way to curate your experience. So you could make mixtapes. Yeah. You could put your favorite song over and over and over again and walk down a block playing your favorite song over and over and over again until you got a reaction that you wanted. Um, 
it was a, a tribal drum. It was a singer songwriter's Martin guitar in the 1940s. It was, it was like what the acoustic guitar to Bob Dylan was, was the boombox was to public enemy. Yeah. Like that's important. And, and, and so the visual of it was kind of not ever quite thought about. And then I have this idea is like, my drive as an artist is make things for me. I like making things for me. I don't, I'm not thinking of like, like street art's popular and scribbles. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do scribbles and stencils because, because that's hot right now. Or I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to subvert the logos of, of major corporations, high-end brands and mix it with popular cartoon characters. Now I'm going to create things that are for me that I really like. And, and if you have conviction about what you're doing sooner or later, other people will pick up on that conviction. Yeah. It's an object was that it I just edit. imagery, Lyle, or was there sculpture there as well? Cause I've seen a, I've seen a, a blue um, boom box and I've seen like a cerise pink. Boom yes. Box. Yes. And, and I had a really fortunate experience with one of my clients we both happened to be london at the same time and his wife is a musician and and had um her, her schedule was packed and he was in london with her and i happened to be in london at the same time and through a mutual client of his we were able to go visit damien hearst and we thought we'd go have a cup of tea with damien look at a shark get out of his hair yeah. and and so we we drove out to the English countryside and went and met this incredibly lovely, gregarious, upbeat, happy, funny, self-deprecating character for lunch who was, who was there with his best friend. Yeah. And, and so the four of us had lunch together and we laughed and laughed and laughed and then ended up spending the day together. And the pinnacle being making a whole bunch of spin paintings together Excellent. and then then going to his foundry and then him going, wow, this boombox thing you got, you got to make sculptures, man. Like, just go for it. He's like, make a 12 inch tall one, send it to me. I'll give them to these guys. They'll scale it up big. It'll be great. I was like, well, I just had a master class with the master. He said I can do sculptures. So why can't I do sculpture? So I ended up creating my own boombox. And it was great because it was the next departure, having chronicled a number of the ones you could go on forever, like closed door. Yeah, I did that. It's time never ending. Yeah, time to move on. Um, I was like, hey, the boombox is kind of like again, like my soup can, my dog. It's my my muse, and it's time to render it in new ways and experiment with lighting and working with now these sculptures where I'm shooting them with this really heavy force perspective and then framing them on a force perspective. So, and, and also to work in 3d is a totally different brain thing. But, but I think as a photographer, I always worked in 3d too. I was always thinking about what the back of the picture looked like. I was always thinking about what existed beyond the frames. I was always looking at bringing things into the frame that, worked in a three-dimensional manner yeah. and and then maybe that's what made my work always quite cinematic because i was informed by movies by motion by great cinematographers 
and and sculptures i can't say like like i've been following the path of the masters but i've been following this path of self-generated objects of of value a self-generated object of pure beauty definitely when was your first interest in art like oh from a kid like time i i was always scribbling but also how growing up in a little small town in northern canada um art was just not understood like like and and again like you would see things in books or you look at jackson pollocks and people go like oh it's just you know toss paint on a canvas what does that mean and and so art for me was brought up under this thing that art was about perfect rendering of something yeah like well he could draw that horse like the horse looked or he could draw that car exactly like the car looked so that was art and it, and it's taken me a long time to unlearn that yeah and the yeah, camera, that's, that's what i thought initially that a good work of art was technically amazing and a great piece of art goes beyond that doesn't it and that's the next stage for me is going to sculptures was a way of re removing the reality and moving more into fantasy and more into fantasy rendering. And, and that's where I'm going more and more and more is getting out of reality. And who knows where I'm gonna end up with it, but I think I've got permission and, and I don't, um, I have to evolve. Yeah. It's like 9-11 chapter, not the full book. Samburu, Mongolia, the work for the UN, other social documentary stuff, other street photography in yeah. New York, all chapters, not the full book. Yeah. How do you relax, Lyle? Uh, I spend time with my son now. Nice. That's, I've, seen, that's, I've seen that. That's a, that's, that is one of the most relaxing, biggest gifts I've ever had, and I had no clue. Um, it's amazing how you can, four hours of sleep, and, and you can sit with him, and you're like, you're the best thing ever. Amazing, eh? Yeah. One of the questions I have got now is if there was you and five other artists, past or present, what would your ideal group show be? Hmm. Who can, it, it, it would be the most colorful black and white show. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I, I would like, uh, it would be a, a group show of significant black and white imagery that froze time nice it's um it, it, like it, it could even be like you know uh, friends family husband wives and you know lovers and friends yeah and a, a, a group show of black and white photography with a connective tissue was the rendering of the human experience in its highest fidelity of manner like like i, I love roger ballen and the the darkness that the journey dives into. I can't go that dark, but he has given us a lot of permission to go that dark. Yeah. And his story is really fascinating being this journeyman, I think he was an engineer in South Africa, but was going to these mining camps and, and taking pictures. Um, Sebastian Salgado, exact same way. He was an economist working for the UN and the camera became his way to tell the story bigger and and um i 
admire both of their black and white work. I admire the black and white work of Abaddon, obviously, who's an icon of black and white photography. Um, Anton Corbin, like it's um, how he taught me what you could do with color and black and white before I'd ever met him. Like, like he gave permission to remove stuff from the picture, to put things into, into darkness. Yeah. Because in the darkness, you, you've got to see more of the character. I, I never really gravitated to the commercial um, photographers. Uh, it's, it's always been the, like, Avenon. He, he worked for um, the Port Authority in New York as taking pass, like basically passport photos of people coming wow, into asylum. That was his beginnings as a photographer, was taking pictures of people who arrived at Ellis Island every day, pictures all day long. And that's what informed that style he has, the paddling. And and so none of these people set out, like, I'm going to be a great photographer. It's Avedon spent all this time in the studio and then said as a fashion photographer was like i'm gonna get out um out of the studio and show shoot the paris collections in the street yeah well what are you thinking what are you thinking and i'm gonna make the models jump and not stand there it's like what an architect of, yeah. of thinking and 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 people put Abaddon on a on a on a on a pedestal they hadn't even got to thinking of how genius he was. Like he was smart, and but he wasn't like he's not even fully there. And I remember I was lunch with um, Steve Frankfurt, who is the famous New York art director, creative director. Look him up. He was okay. thirty-two years old. He was named president of YNR in New York. He he did movie titles. He did advertising. And he, he and I used to go and have pancakes in New York and sit in a diner in the Upper East Side. And he would, he would be like, talk to me about how when he worked on creating Sesame Street or creating gerbil tubes, uh, all the toys that he came up with with Mattel. And he also did the opening title sequence for Superman, for Alien, for his first one that he ever did was for Kill a Mockingbird, like the guy's career. And he was the most humble guy ever. Like he, he looked at being creative, like as a service to humanity, like being a plumber, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just show up and do job, you know, it's, of course I've got to come up with good ideas. I've got to come up with solutions to yeah, this. My uh, joke. He was no joke. And like those are the fun that's why you live in new york for those spontaneous moments yeah if i see something i like now i'm like damn that was i even did it this morning with a photographer um joey l who's obviously in i think he's in rwanda on assignment he posted this beautiful portrait and i I just you know gorgeous portrait joey like yeah like because because he's got he's pushing me like nice and, and, and that's the way it's, it's, it's got to be. Unfortunately, technology is, which I advocate has created much more of a democracy of imagery. And, and right now, as we've done this interview, we've been on for about an hour. 
more pictures were taken in this hour in the history of humanity than were taken last century entirely. It's amazing. And you think of that. So the goal then, which for me as a creative person was not to take more pictures, was to slow time down and to take better pictures. Nice. And, and it's kind of a summary thought now that we've had this conversation, but it's, it's, it's where I, I leave things off because as I go forward as a creative person, it's not to make more, it's to make better. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I challenge the generation below me. Cause you can go on Instagram and find some kid who's got a million Instagram followers and people are like, Oh, we love it. We love it. Love it. But will they remember the pictures they watched on his Instagram feed two yeah. years from now? Will they even remember it? Probably not. So the point is, is not more. It's just better. I agree and, totally. And that's where I'm at. Well, what would you like to be, Lowe, if you wasn't a photographer, if you wasn't an artist? Probably a sailor. Oh, nice. Good answer. I've, I've had remarkable experience with some of the top sailors just through racing, being able to be invited to document some racing. And I remember it's, it's an informed, a way of thinking for me for the rest of my life. And we were in a race. The gentleman was captaining the boat, was, was president of a sail manufacturer. And the particular boat we were on was acting up. We were right in this bucket race and the choice was to tack out and follow everyone else or to run between the spire and yeah. the cliff sides of an island. Oh, yeah. The captain was talking to his tactician. And his tactician said, we've got enough depth to make it between that spire and the cliff side. We're not going to rip the keel off. The choice was, do we destroy this boat yeah. or pull this tactical move split seconds captain looks at the owner of the boat and says we have this choice tacked out or run there you could see the crews on the other boats being like what are these guys doing yeah right between the rocks Excellent. saved all that time boom 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 win the race one of the guys was like, what did you think of that? And I said, well, you, you know, sometimes in life you got a zig when everyone else is zagging. But that's because as a photographer, I'm an observer. Yeah. And, and if I wasn't doing this, it would be doing something else that provides the ability to test your sense of observation every day. I think being on a sailboat would um, not be a bad delivery on that. Perfect answer. But ended this podcast just on time that's all my questions asked Lowe, where can people see your work be it um social media or website yeah uh social medias instagram is my full name lyle l-y-l-e-o-w-e-r-k-o on instagram and uh same with my website lyleawerko.com brilliant Lowe, this i've got to say this is the quietest i've ever been on a podcast <laughs> I've just sharpened listen to you because it was absolutely amazing your experience uh, what you went through what you documented for, for for everyone to see for now and in the future 
it was amazing, man. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. This is a real pleasure, real fun way to end the week. Take care. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Lyle. Well, there you go. Lyle O'Worko. That was one incredible conversation. And as I said in the intro, no matter what their reasons were, the ramifications of that act are still being felt 19 years later. This is one of the few times when I really do regret not having a wider vocabulary. Because I really haven't got the fucking words to describe the amount of loss, destruction, heartache and absolute fucking devastation that was caused when them two planes hit those two towers. I'm not going to go into the politics of it because fuck the politics of it. And I'm not going to talk about the fucking financial cost of it. Because it's only the governments who are worried about the financial cost of it. There's towns, cities and even countries that have been devastated in retaliation from this. And Lilo Worko just happened to capture a thousandth of a second in a moment of time somewhere near the start of this story. As artists, we all want to capture our little moment in time. Some people's moments in time is just a little bit more incredible than others. So Lyle... Thank you for your time. Elizabeth, thank you for the introduction. And like I say every week, on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast, you should be able to leave a comment. If you could do that, that really would help us to get noticed and anybody else looking for an art podcast. So, thanks again for listening. And until next week, ta-da. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.